Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Marcela Nunez-Smith, a physician here at Yale University. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Thanks so much, Max. So as you mentioned, I'm faculty here at the School of Medicine. Um, I also hold appointments at the School of Public Health and the School of Management. Um, the time goes really quickly. I've been here for 15 years uh, now, and I was really fortunate to have the opportunity to come here and train in the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholars Program uh, as a health sciences researcher after I did my internal medicine residency at Brigham Women's Hospital. Um, and before that, uh, I was at Jefferson for medical school and Swarthmore um, for undergrad, and along the way I taught high school. Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't know that about awesome. you. Yeah, a little um, surprise there, 10th grade homeroom. And... Um, very happy to be here with you today. Thank you. So where are you from originally? So I grew up in St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands, mm-hmm. and um, that's still home with a capital H for me. Uh, I left when I was 16 to go to college. Gotcha. Genius. Hardly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I brought us here today to kind of talk about um, Hurricane Maria. We're sort of coming on the one-year anniversary of when Maria hit um, the Eastern Caribbean islands. Um, and I kind of wanted to get a sense of, um, you know, the aftermath of the hurricane, um, since then you have family there, it's home for you. Uh, and yeah. Yeah. Um, I thank you so much for, uh, making the space and opportunity for this conversation. I, I do think that, um, with a year passing, the topic has faded from a lot of people's, uh, radar screens and, uh, the reality is that there there is a new normal um, across the Eastern Caribbean, but it certainly is not uh, what it was pre the storms. Um, certainly from my perspective, uh, I, I appreciate this chance to think of it uh, through that personal lens. Um, my mother still lives in St. Thomas and many close family and friends and, and colleagues because um, and lead a research network that's based in the region. And so um, there are many, many, many lives of people uh, who I think a lot about and worry about in the region. So um, we are coming up on the one-year anniversary of Maria. We recently had the one-year anniversary of Irma. Uh, right, which was even perhaps more devastating than Maria in that region? Or You know, I, I was watching... Um, on the the Weather Channel, uh, as Irma traveled across the region, and I will never remember because a meteorologist said, if we had a Category Six designation, Irma would be a Category Six. Um, so it was a fearsome storm, uh, but I think, you know, sort of the double hit of these two uh, sort of unparalleled in strength and force storms, um, no one was really ready for. Uh, most certainly, Irma was more devastating uh, to the island of St. Thomas in particular. Um, the island was again affected by Maria very shortly after, uh, and Maria in turn to our sibling island of St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands was more devastating, um, as it obviously uh, was for, for the island of Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the less known realities of the hurricane, and this is true um, in the region, but across most all of the disaster areas, 
uh, is the fact that the storm itself is certainly frightening and fierce um, and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the wind, the mini tornado, um, weather events within it uh, are, are a threat in and of themselves to obviously um, life and property. But the time following the passing of the storm is uh, perhaps the time that is most threatening to human life. Uh, And I know personally, we have lost so many families and friends, family members and friends who were living with with chronic disease. And there was just no way to manage that in the aftermath. And so whether it's, um, you know, our friends who couldn't uh, access insulin or couldn't keep it safe. uh, And there is no way to... Um, to even describe what it's like to live in a community where uh, one can't access medications or clean water or um, or food uh, reliably for months and months on end, uh, where there is no electricity. Right. Um, and this was and is the reality. I have friends in Puerto Rico who are still without power, for example. And, and, and so... The past and the present is very blurred as we talk about what the storms uh, did to the islands. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the um, sort of struggles in the aftermath in terms of dealing with chronic disease, diabetes, hypertension, especially if with diabetes, if you have to store your insulin in a refrigerator and you don't have power. So I'm curious, what are some of the sort of large health gaps that have been created, like thinking about all the healthcare infrastructure um, and how those might be mitigated since then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think there was, uh, you know, I, there are a lot of media outlets that I, I think did um, a really laudable job talking about healthcare and, uh, and the realities on the ground before and after the storms. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to know where we were even before the storms struck uh, and that there were gaps and that certainly there are um, there exist policies that apply to, uh, to the U.S. Ter- territories in particular that disadvantage the residents there um, in terms of uh, access to consistently high-quality care. And um, going into these storms, the healthcare systems, um, for myriad reasons, weren't optimized. And so um, the infrastructure was already um, in many ways uh, in need of deep investment, and the storms uh, really devastated what was there. I mean, even if you think about kind of the physical realities um, on the ground. So the hospitals in the Virgin Islands were destroyed. There are two mm-hmm. hospitals. Um, and uh, first Irma in St. Thomas and then Maria in St. Croix destroyed the only two hospitals that in the territory. Um, and so even down to the physical buildings aren't there right. anymore. And, uh, Many healthcare delivery sites in Puerto Rico also sustained heavy, heavy damage. Um, 
So I think when you think about um, opportunities, and I've been really grateful and fortunate to be part of some conversations, how do we move forward in rebuilding the healthcare infrastructure in the region? Where are opportunities to think about uh, solutions such as microgrids? How do we get our healthcare delivery systems at least to, um, to harness the power of solar or other so mm-hmm. that these deep interruptions in power at least aren't uh, the reason why we lose life. So I think there are opportunities moving forward, but certainly uh, the context is important to say that these were healthcare systems that um, uh, deferred maintenance would be uh, a euphemism in terms of where we were before the storm. And certainly now to rebuild is, is hopefully to rebuild a stronger even, system, even, even stronger. Right. Um, so you mentioned earlier you're, you're a researcher and you work with quite a few faculty members in the region um, looking at chronic disease um, in the area and sort of general issues of disparities there. So you mind elaborating a little bit on some of the, um, first, the policies that are barriers to um, the local population accessing adequate care, but also some of the um, shortcomings that were faced even before um, the really devastating hurricanes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, of course, for for a long time, um, the territory has carried a designation of a health professional shortage area. Uh, that is n- not something that is unique to the territories, uh, of course. We have many communities in the mainland U.S. that are also... Um, don't have enough health professionals to deliver care. Uh, but on top of, of, of that, in addition to, to that, um, you know, the reality in terms of the healthcare payers in the region um, and sort of the population and uh, the territories themselves that have um, high poverty rates and many, many uh, residents in both the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico uh, receive their health insurance and coverage through uh, CMS and through uh, Medicaid and, and Medicare. And many of the Medicare beneficiaries are um, are also eligible for Medicaid. And uh, there are very long-standing um, policies related to reimbursement rates for hospitals uh, and providers who are located. Um, in the U.S. territories, and so the territories are treated as a policy collective. This is in a different policy in the U.S. Virgin Islands versus Puerto Rico. This also affects uh, the other territories, such as Guam and American Samoa and the Northern Marianas, uh, but something that we don't see in the mainland states. And so these caps on on reimbursement uh, that really, in essence, provide much lower reimbursement and compensation. So there are many fewer healthcare dollars moving through those healthcare systems compared to their pair hospitals for pure conditions on the mainland. Um, there are also some other important uh, pieces of, of these policies that affect the availability of things like rehab services after discharge. And um, many of what we might uh, collectively refer as wrap, to as wraparound services that mm-hmm. help keep people healthy um, and well and on the road to recovery even after they're, they're discharged. All right. That's really unfortunate. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about, because you 
mentioned wrapper, quote-unquote wraparound services um, is because the territories are located in a region that is prone to disasters and we're currently you know in an era of, with climate change there hurricanes are and, and we're in hurricane season right now yes um, I don't know what you uh, what you what your thoughts are or sort of what do you think is happening now in terms of um, disaster readiness on the territory um, right you know so the 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 territory in particular the two territories we're talking about today is Puerto Rico obviously in the US Virgin Islands you are correct all of the territories um, are our islands um, are at risk for these kinds of uh, events as we have also seen in recent years you know the, the mainland isn't protected right. Um, South Carolina, right? Um, we we are on hurricane watches right now for the Carolinas and and Virginia, and so um, certainly these the the uh, changes that um, that that we see in terms of the strength, the ferocity of these storms that um, is due to climate change, uh, is a whole new dawn for folks in the islands and elsewhere where um, where. Folks are at risk for these big storms, so we do have to think differently about disaster preparedness um, and what that looks like. Uh, what can we have um, in place that can be readily mobilized? Um, you know, so much of this is logistics. As I mentioned before, these conversations we've had around rebuilding healthcare infrastructure after the storms um, have focused not a great deal on healthcare specifically. Um, we've talked about things like the power grid, uh, which Puerto Rico um, really illustrates that a, a, a vulnerable power grid uh, going down in the storm and how hard it was and still is to bring everybody back online. And so when asked what's the most important thing to ensure um, sort of the, the maintenance of healthcare delivery that's strong in the, in the wake of the storms, it is electricity. Mm-hmm. And so we were having conversations about, um, about that and about communications, right? How do you make sure that you have all the necessary satellite phones pre-positioned? Um, in addition to things like medications, you know, the, the island's pharmacies were uh, severely affected, but also certain policies, right? So if CMS will only reimburse for payment for one type of glucometer and that glucometer strips, then when that supply is destroyed in the hurricane, a pharmacy may have others in stock, but that's still not able to be accessed. Mm. Or um, when ATMs are down and all credit cards are down and it becomes a cash-only economy for patients who their insurance can't be processed at this time, and so their normal monthly prescriptions for their blood pressure bill becomes exorbitant, $500 in cash to be provided to a pharmacy. So, but ATMs are out of money, right? And so how do we think of these um, critical, 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 critical uh, pieces um, that we don't necessarily come to mind first and foremost when we, when we kind of think about a, deploying a workforce, for instance, but we need power, we need satellite communications, we need ways to get meds in quickly, we need ways to be responsive to the immediate transition to a cash-only economy where insurance and credit um, have no meaning. 
Um, so I think all of those have to become part of the conversation for real disaster preparedness. And to a higher degree, the territories that are obviously geographically um, removed. So there is no, no bridge. There's no tractor trailer to come over a bridge. There is no way to evacuate everyone um, in, a, uh, in a really quick manner. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot of room for innovation. I really do think that uh, what we have a lot of are, are ports, deep sea. You know, what can we do with, with cruise ships and boats um, mm-hmm. in the interim? So I do think there are ways to, to be innovative um, without necessarily um, not taking into consideration the cost uh, of what we're talking about. Right. Um, another concern from when I think about this is um, just given the history of U.S. mainland to territory relationships, is the territories are populated by people of color, um, yes. and just kind of wondering how that factor taints the way in which the general sort of the way in which policies are driven and decisions are made. Yeah, so you are correct. I mean, so t- collectively, the all the territories. Um, are home to um, a little bit over 5 million uh, U.S. residents. Uh, you know, um, most Americans are not aware that uh, citizens in the U.S. territories are, are born as U.S. citizens um, mm-hmm. and uh, aren't even able to name all of the territories. I think it was quite eye-opening to see many people learn for the first time um, that Puerto Rico is part of the United States after the hurricanes. Uh, or barely see any coverage of the Virgin Islands. Right, and then the Virgin Islands was less so covered. But um, uh, I certainly have to say that there, there are, there are some people with whom I, I had a conversation yesterday. Someone, you, you know, was talking about um, everybody having recently um, naturalized, and they asked me when my when I had naturalized after we had gone through where we were born. And so I think there is a lot of. Uh, people just not even knowing what the territories are. Uh, but yes, over 5 million U.S. citizens uh, live there. Obviously, Puerto Rico being the most densely populated, and the mar- majority of, of those folks identify as what we would say are racial ethnic minorities, although in those communities they are majority minority communities. Um, all. Uh, many of the, the policies that I talked about before um, one of the reasons they are so entrenched is because the residents in the territories uh, do not have the ability to uh, to vote in federal elections, um, and so that vote is denied. Um, as well, they do not have uh, voting representation in Congress. So the territories each have a non-voting member of the House uh, who is able to vote in committee but not vote on the floor. Uh, so this is, is very difficult because if you think um, uh, through kind of all the basic civics lessons we've learned, uh, the way in which legislators have to work together is, is often based upon a contingent upon reciprocity in voting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the congressional delegation from the territories, they, they do not have that leverage. Um, and so their colleagues uh, do not need to politically take into consideration their vote or their not vote. They don't have a vote. Um, and so and th- their constituents uh, similarly don't have a vote in these federal elections. Um, and 
that is a set of circumstance that makes it very difficult um, for, for this question of caps or uh, reimbursement, healthcare expenditures, any of that to really be brought to, to the fore. Although the congressional delegation has worked very, very hard, and this has been a central issue for, uh, for decades for the territorial delegations and, and through the ACA have been able to move some of those caps, um, but still a lot more to, to be done. Uh, even if you consider um, uh, something like dialysis, which is as a particular case study after the storm, um, as there is no dialysis um, uh, available, right, as the facilities were destroyed, but also what is the governmental ability to respond, uh, where can people go, who can go with them, for how long, so the, the plans around um, how do we support in the aftermath the uh, patients who have chronic disease who remain on island, but also the ones that we need to relocate, mm -hmm. um, how does that uh, all work? And, um, and many of these conversations, I think, are being um, had now, um, but the political will to change systematically some of the big issues uh, is uh, is still wanting. Right. Uh, I remember last year when uh, Congress and the president agreed to sort of temporarily um, suspend the Jones Act so right. that supplies could be sent over to Puerto Rico. And a lot of people thought, well, this is a very archaic policy anyways. Why, right. why not just get rid of it? But um, this issue of political will clearly seems to get in the way of Improvement, right, right, and and exactly. So, um, so the Jones Act is 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 one example of I think. Um, so there is this one question of kind of what policies are in place now that are perhaps a hindrance to getting to this new, better future for healthcare and health outcomes for people who live there, um, and that I would say is when we talk about you know, kind of the. The, the not particularly exciting but important minutia of caps and reimbursement and um, uh, and wraparound services and and those issues and I think there's also others like just generally knowing enough about the territories to be responsive quickly. Uh, the Jones Act has been around for a while and it, it varies administration to administration the speed with which that is suspended um, and so that I think is 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 perhaps a really good example of a, a delay because there's a learning curve for mm -hmm. those in, in leadership to, to understand really what the relationship is of the territories to the, uh, to the country um, and what are those really fast, what should likely be reflexes in those moments. Like, yes, we need to automatically suspend Jones. But we'll some, get rid of it. But some administrations... It, that was not a barrier mm -hmm. in terms of providing relief in the area, and and this time that that was right. Right. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit and, and ask you this one question about disaster prepare uh, preparation because we are at a medical yes, school. We are. Um, so, what are your thoughts in terms of the need for disaster preparedness training and medical education now, especially, you know, climate change? Like things aren't don't look like they're gonna get any better. Um, in terms of hurricanes or um, terrible weather or climate conditions, um, what should medical schools be doing? Yeah. Um, 
So I think that's a great question and so appropriate given where we're sitting to think about uh, the role of medical education and helping us get ready for what is clearly the future that you're going to live in um, and be practicing in. Um, so I would say there is most certainly a role, um, both in undergrad medical education as well as graduate medical, medical education um, and residency programs to think about disaster preparedness and what does that look like. Um, there are really, I think, some great models out there for how uh, we can prep go teams uh, to be able to respond in a way that is coordinated and helpful. Um, and I think there's probably both a need for the practical skill of what one does um, as a health provider to, to, to get ready when the, the natural disaster approaches and in the immediate aftermath, but also how to work well with, with um, on-the-ground resources and to not sort of get in the way of, of, um, of local regional expertise um, and how to, to be collaborative. And so I think there's a lot of work that has to happen um, in the quiet times, right, to make sure that that's the case. And so I think there is, um, there is curricular work to be done in both regards. And, and I think there are really great models where there are um, GO teams where it is very clear um, how... Um, how a GO team might work well with a local government, with a local uh, healthcare providers um, and leaders to make the response smooth um, and, and coordinated. I think one of the things um, that came up actually in the immediate um, aftermath of the storm was there, there wasn't water, right? There wasn't water, there wasn't food. And, um, and folks said, please don't come, right? We don't need any more help to come because we're just trying to figure out how to get water to them, right? And how to get food to them. Like we don't have medical supplies here. There's nothing more to be done, but you're coming and that's just more challenging. Why? Right. <laughs> yeah. Why are you coming? Because we don't have food for the people who are here mm -hmm. and now we have to feed you too. Um, and so I think that level of, um, of understanding the timing and the how and the with whom is, is really important. Uh, but you're right. I mean, the reality is that climate change is going to cause us to see things we have yet to imagine, uh, and it will require a different set of skills and preparation for our future physicians and health professionals um, than what we do now. Right. Thank you so much, um, and thank you for sharing your expertise and personal experience um, regarding these topics, and I'm really sorry to hear about the friends and families who Thank you. have been so terribly affected by these hurricanes. Um, it's been a pleasure discussing this with you, and I look forward to having you back on the pod. Thank you so much, Max. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.